And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Hello, Joe. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excited to be on this podcast, I have to say. Especially now that, like, you are an official Nicole Kidman celebrity. Uh, yes, thank you so much. I am officially a celebrity. Um, I was going to say because we've officially met in real life, but uh, also that, that too. also true. <laughs> we saw an incredibly emotionally affecting film, and then you became a Nicole Kidman celebrity. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the. It was a big day for me. I think that was yeah. the same day. Man, uh, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the Kid Manifesto, man. Um, I'm happy you're here. I'm excited. I was. A- I'm glad I was able to to pick one of the. I feel like I showed up to like Best Buy at the day after Thanksgiving, and they had the big old bin of like DVDs that nobody had bought yet. And I was like, "Aha! I found one at the bottom of the barrel." This really feels like it feels like that, but it also feels um, similar situation. Like when you would go to a Hollywood video and it would be like three for 10 or four yes. for 15 and you just needed that last one. And you were like, okay, I haven't seen this, but sure. That thing where like two movies were on the same DVD cover and you're just like, are they just two sides to the same like disc? Like what's going on in there? <laughs> yeah. um, before we, before we talk about this movie at hand, um, can we talk about you a little? Would you mind introducing yeah. yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Joe Reed. I am a senior writer at Decider.com. I'm also a podcaster on the podcast This Had Oscar Buzz with my co-host Chris File, who was also with us when we saw Roma on that fateful day in Toronto. Um, <laughs> I've been sort of writing about TV and movies for close to like 10 years now, maybe even a little bit longer for TV. I've been in New York for about 11 years. Um Really? I mean, I'm gay, so I love Nicole Kidman. I mean, that feels like it's going without saying, right? Like, I I feel like we all have these, like, long, complicated relationships with Nicole Kidman, right? Where, like, she's been with us. She's probably, like, been somebody I've known about for two-thirds of my life, which is crazy. (laughs) But much longer than almost all of my friendships, so. Oh, absolutely. There's this, like, trajectory that I've noticed with several former guests and and maybe you'll ascribe to this too which is like knowing that she's a thing from maybe like seeing her and stuff and then there's a moment where you realize like oh she's a thing like she's like a thing i should know other than just like a woman who pops up in these movies that i watch right i mean i feel like so i'm just like all right i am probably a good bit a little bit older than some of the people you've had on your podcast um I feel like I always am like among the older of my contemporaries around here, which is fine. I don't have a problem with it. I'm not driving myself crazy about it or anything. That's a lie. Um, (laughs) But so, cause like, I remember like, Oh right. Nicole Kidman, when she was in her like early Tom Cruise era, right? Like when, before they became like the stately Hollywood couple, when they were still sort of like young and, you know, quote unquote in love or whatever, when they were doing like far and away and days of thunder or stuff like that. I remember that. I remember them being like the people magazine couple or whatever, but also even before that, I remember when Nicole was in that movie dead calm. And I think that was before she even like fully left Australia. And that was the first, one of the first scary movies that I ever really watched, not on my own. Cause it was in like a group setting, but like, Sort of, I was flying without a net with that one because I didn't quite know how scary it was going to get. I just knew that there was like murder on the high seas, and I was with like my my aunt and like a bunch of like older cousins, and I was fully not you know ready to be scared that way. But it wasn't that scary. But it was the first thing I had ever seen Nicole Kidman in. And then that same aunt was like a Tom Cruise obsessive. So and she was into like cocktail and risky business and all that um, because she was like one of my younger aunts, and she was obsessed with the movie Far and Away. And so I, little closeted 10-year-old or whatever, um, became obsessed with the movie Far and Away too. But in a way where like I'm watching it for like Tom Cruise is an Irish boxer guy. And really, I'm in it for the scene where Nicole Kidman is like lifting up the little like ceramic bowl over his penis and like sneaking in a peek. Mm-hmm. Where I'm and I'm just sort of just like, yes, me, that wig, whatever. Um so that's sort of the Nicole Kidman that I kind of came into being sort of knowing about. And then everything from there, 
was just like watching this like fascinating story unfold where it's just like her marriage and her divorce and Batman Forever and all these sorts of strange things. <laughs> I love that Batman Forever is its own chapter. It was a chapter in all of our lives, I feel like. I feel like people forget how heavily that movie was advertised, especially to like young kids on like MTV and whatever. Like that movie was the biggest thing for a while. Yeah, I've uh I said this before on the podcast, but many a guest has like quoted Batman Forever as being either formative for them as far as Nicole history is concerned or formative of them as far as their sexual history is concerned. That doesn't super surprise me. I have to say like, especially given like, again, it's like the age range, the age bracket, like the people that we know. Um, but yeah, it's, she's a big one. Um, I cannot imagine watching dead calm as a child with my family because there is a decent amount of nudity in that. And I always yeah. re- was really, I was concerned for other people's reactions more than I was my own embarrassment, but I was experiencing, I always experienced like a shot in Freud for everyone in my family having to do that and have to like be around me more than anything. Is that <laughs> <I> mean, weird? <laughs> no, that's totally not weird. I think I was more preoccupied with being scared at the point, but every time after that, that I saw dead calm, cause I've seen it maybe like four or five times in my life. And like Billy Zane in that movie is so goddamn like aggressively sexual and so much like this sort of like, bronze chested psychopath right where he's just sort of like stalking her and she wants to have sex with him and you want her to have sex with him even though you know he's dangerous and you know he's probably a murderer and yeah there's a lot going on in that movie while poor sam neil is on the little rowboat dinghy going off to the other ship yeah it's crazy how hot he is in that movie where he's crazy on a boat compared to the other movie where he's crazy on a exactly boat. exactly yeah no one's looking for him to take his shirt off in titanic no and i will just once again remind the audience how hot tom cruise is in far and away it's oh, truly crazy my god it's the maybe the only thing i've because i've like he's one of those people who is like textbook handsome but i've i've so rarely find him like on an attraction level, I never really get there with Tom Cruise. And I feel like that's probably not a rare thing to say nowadays, but like it's the, it was the rare movie where I was attracted to Tom Cruise, but like it was up to 11 in far and away. Like something was going on there. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> I, you guys, you and Chris haven't, I don't think you've done a Nicole movie on this hot Oscar buzz, but no. just off the top of your head, can you think of anything that is kind of in that realm? I kind of I pitched the other day to Chris um the Stepford Wives and we sort of hemmed and hawed about whether that would count because I do remember there being some sort of I think for a while there after she had won the Oscar um everything she did had a little bit of Oscar buzz because it was her um so we sort of decided that maybe that wasn't quite exactly what we were talking about but like something like remember that movie fur well obviously you remember i keep saying i keep wondering if i should ask you if you remember these movies and then i remember that like you've done episodes on all of these things um i think fur is definitely one of those that sort of falls into the cracks nobody remembers it but i absolutely remember people thinking like oh yeah it's this it's a biopic about an artist and you know it's (laughs) it's you know it's artistic and prestigious and of course she'll knock it out of the park um the human stain absolutely had Oscar buzz. And that's one of those, like the biggest falls from potential to reality is that movie. Um, She's got a lot. She had that sort of Australia, I think is a big one. Although Australia was nominated for some uh, technical awards, but I think that was one where there were big, big, big hopes for that one. That one was, you know, possibly going to be the big Baz Luhrmann sort of, sweeping iconic Oscar play and it didn't work out, but that's a very interesting movie to talk about Australia, like in, in its successes and failures, I feel like. So yeah, Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a Nicole Kidman one for sure. Probably soon. Wonderful. Uh, Oh my God. That was the one that I was thinking of. That was the one that I was just about to bring up (laughs) because it literally went from like, premiering at can to like airing on lifetime oh man that was that was a time that was really <laughs> and the that only trajectory. thing that made it even more interesting was around the same time naomi watts had another had a movie that sort of bombed 
very similarly when she was in the Princess Diana movie. And I always you think are. of their careers together, obviously, because they're like besties. But I always it's <laughs> you know how certain celebrities and celebrity relationships are they get sort of defined on Twitter, especially or like social media or sort of like within our little communities in ways that may or may not be true, but are definitely true on Twitter. And I feel like Nicole Kidman and Naomi Watts's friendship is one of those things where I feel like we've all decided that it's this very sort of like fraught friendship where Nicole is the successful one and Naomi is the less successful one. And, Nicole's success always sort of irks Naomi a little bit. And I always think about that when I think of like those two movies, especially Grace of Monaco and Diana, where Naomi was having a little bit of a laugh at Nicole failing and and Diana just sort of bombs. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're back to square one now. Honey, I just need to tell you that at the end of this podcast, when we rate the movie, one of the things that you're going to get to rate this movie on is what I call the Naomi Watts scale. And you're going to get to quantify exactly how jealous Naomi Watts is of this movie. This is exactly what I mean. See, <laughs> you've got it. Exactly. All right. I'm, I'm a scholar. Uh, yes. Can we let's let's zoom in a little. Let's talk about uh, the movie at hand, which is the family fang, um, which you kind of sort of volunteered for but only in the context of me giving you like a small handful of films i got the smattering of offerings for sure one of which was the railway man which i fully i know i've heard about it once but i was like i don't even know what that movie is about except a railway man i guess um to the episode and let me tell you we weren't sure either. <laughs> you are no closer to figuring it out um yeah, so The Family Fang jumped out at me because I'd actually seen it. It was um, a Jason Bateman directed this movie. It was at, it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2015. And that, as you know, having you know been there, there's a lot of movies at Toronto. And some are big and some are small. And some of them may have like big stars in them, but they might not be major releases and so there are things with like really major actors that can pass by completely unnoticed and i don't think anybody was really talking about this movie at all but it had nicole kidman in it so i was like well it's worth a flyer and i was there that whole week so this was sort of like later in the week and i was like oh i'll check out the family fang and i kind of liked it i liked it a little bit but the one thing i wanted to mention about this movie was and this is like fully unfounded gossip and like sourced to nothing and like fully take it with a grain of salt. It's probably not true. But what I had heard was that uh, nobody from the film wanted to come to Toronto to promote it. And what I had heard was because nobody had gotten along with Jason Bateman. Now, again, (gasps) interesting. That might be fully false and like whatever, you know, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly cover my ass. But like, that's what I heard. So. That's especially interesting, too, because Nicole has, like, a pretty long history of, like, loving comedy and loving comedians. Like, famously, she worked with Adam Sandler because he said that he was going to make a movie for her, and she just loves to be funny. So the fact that that, like, the world in which that's true is especially interesting to me. And she tends to get along with some famously difficult directors, too. Like, Lars she managed, yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. So I feel like I don't think she's ever really had a reputation for being difficult. So, and then, you know, as Jason Bateman's sort of career has gone on, and like this last, that thing, that New York Times interview with poor Jessica Walter and everything like that. So every time mm-hmm. I see him say something stupid or act in a way that seems like an asshole, I'm just like, that's why Nicole Kidman didn't like you, huh? I could I could see that being true. Let me just completely speak on her behalf in a way that I'm completely not justified in doing. But I imagine <laughs> if everyone if everyone feels that way, because I think like if you look at Lodge Montreal and you look at like Kubrick, I think she can take a beating because she knows she's like a craftswoman. But I imagine that she probably has a pretty low tolerance for it happening to other people, just uh-huh. being kind of like a champion of justice. So I can see that being kind of like a global mistreatment. I love this fan fiction that we're spinning out about this movie. Thank you. Anyway, we're getting sued as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the other thing Um, that made me want to see the movie was the screenplay was it was adapted from a book, but it was the screenplay was written by David Lindsay Abair, who was a playwright in his own right and who had uh, written the play Rabbit Hole that Nicole mm -hmm. uh, was in the movie version of that. And that was one of one of my favorite 
of Nicole's performances. He actually also, okay, so this is an interesting little anecdote. He wrote a play called Good People that was on Broadway a few years ago. Frances McDormand was in it. She won a Tony Award for it. And I saw that play one of its last days. It was like almost done. Um, And so it it was getting to the point where like it was going to close. So I just went and I saw it by myself and I was leaving. I was walking out and sort of stepped out the front door and literally almost walked right into Nicole Kidman, who was getting into her town car or whatever. So she was at this performance and it was quite the moment. It was the closest I've ever come to meeting her. She's so stunning. She's so stunning. Oh my god! Like absolutely. So again, she um, stayed close. She stays close with the t- the creative people in her life. Yeah, I mean, look at John Cameron Mitchell. It's like a friendship that has continued for no good reason, really. <laughs> Listen, whatever gets her in punk rock wigs is fine with me. That's true. Also, I do feel compelled to say that you missed David Lindsay Bear's um, uh, truly most artistic credit, which is that he wrote a little play called Shrek the Musical. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrote the book. <laughs> no! Oh my god, he's so versatile. Which, I know, which is an iconic musical. I don't mean to sound like I'm shitting on it. I truly Listen, love Shrek the Musical. anything that Sutton Foster agrees to be in, I will give the benefit of the doubt to, so. True. Um, I'm trying to think, before we actually talk about the movie, I'm trying to think of anything that was at TIFF this year that kind of had that same like star power, but no one was talking. Maybe like Red Joan is the only thing I can think of. Red Joan is a very good example of that. Yeah, we're like, nobody really talked about it. I don't even know if anybody saw it. Last year, um, Emma Thompson was in a movie called The Children Act um, that actually is coming out this year um, or maybe has already opened somewhere. I just I saw will. someone log it last night, actually. <laughs> yeah, so, and that was one where like, I don't think Anybody I knew saw that movie at TIFF last year. And sometimes it's that they will like open late and a lot of the journalists will go home early in the week. And so maybe that's why. Um, But this same 2015 Toronto Film Festival, I also saw a movie called Five Nights in Maine with uh, David Ayelowo and um, Diane Wiest, (laughs) where like they play like estranged mother-in-law and son-in-law and nobody saw that movie ever never it like i saw it eventually ended up on netflix or something but it probably got a vod release but like it's that kind of movie that sometimes i will seek out at toronto because like sometimes it'll end up being good weirdly like still alice kind of started as that kind of a movie where like nobody was anticipating still alice and all of a sudden i was gonna say gloria bell because oh, it, like, I know people saw it. I know people saw it, but like for a movie starring Julianne Moore and almost nobody else, uh, I, I just expected more buzz. Anyway. Yes. It's um, really good, though. When it opens next year, everybody should see it. I thought it was just regular good. <gasps> I think she's stellar in it. I just, I, I'm not convinced that that movie needed to be remade in the way that it was remade. I understand that. I was just so happy. I think at that point that I had seen so many really heavy, dramatic movies that I'm just like, give me something that will delight me. And it did. So it it hit the spot. I will say during her Q&A, she was actually love and light and she was just prancing around the oh, stage. Oh, I bet. I believe it. She's the best. Leather skirt. Yeah. Oh. Um, I want to have a drink what? with Julianne Moore. I want to have one really leisurely drink with Julianne Moore. That's what I want. I saw her coming out of the, um, like, one of the, like, poke places that, like, was converted into, like, a press building. And I was just like, I bet she's just in there, like, drinking a sake that they handed her, and she's just having so much fun. Perfect. Yep. Um, This is a movie that I think uh, is a thesis of many movies, and maybe you'll agree with me, which I could boil this movie down to, Catherine Hahn deserves better. She does. She absolutely does. She's great in this as she is in all things. She's so good. And I just, um, I'm the like, we want more. We want more commercial kid. Yeah. When I see her. No, I totally agree. It's, and it's especially because she is in the flashback. So she doesn't get to even be in the scenes with any of the main, <laughs> you know, the main cast with Kidman or with Bateman or with Walken, which is too bad because like one of the great things about Catherine Hahn is that she's so good sort of opposite other talented actors. So she's a little bit like on her own little island in these flashbacks, but also, you know, she kills it. Yeah, it's sad because she really is like, she's probably our best actress at like punching up. <laughs> like, she, Yeah. She could really like hold her own. And the only person she has to play off of is that like 
fake um uh oh my god what's the guy's name from the west wing the fake bradley whitford <laughs> right um that's not a bad way of uh, describing that actor i can't recall where i might have seen him in anything else before but fake bradley whitford isn't bad um, I should also say that I had to rent this on Vudu because it simply wasn't available cheaper anywhere else. So shout out to Vudu. Wait, how cheap did you get it on Vudu? I probably paid too much. It was a three ninety nine rental. Oh, I paid like five ninety nine for SD on Amazon. Ooh, I got that HDX baby. Yeah. Okay. I feel. I felt like I had already seen the movie. I'm like, I don't need to pay for HD. I know how everybody looks. It's fine. Voodoo's the dark horse. It comes through for the yeah. whole thing. I never think about it. I should. Thing. I should think about it more. Um, do you want to set up the kind of like plot of the movie before we tear it apart? Sure. So, um, through some flashbacks, we find out a little bit about this, uh, this Fang family where the parents are these performance artists who stage these kind of elaborate scenarios that are, you know, it's just them and their kids. So it's not quite flash mob level stuff but it's like public performance art that is all kind of stupid and half-assed where like they'll stage a bank robbery and fake you know the mother getting shot but then they won't be able to like hold the ruse for too long and they'll just sort of like film a little bit of it with the video camera and then go running away and we find out that this family was sort of notorious throughout i'm gonna guess the 70s um for doing these sort of silly stunts and no one really takes them seriously as artists. We see this one really funny scene of these two people sort of debating their value as artists. And there's one person who you can tell is a little bit like trashier and sort of like, isn't quite as smart maybe as the other guy who's trying to stick up for the fangs. And the other guy is just sort of like, come on, they're not art. And I thought that was kind of funny. Um, And then, so we see in the present day, that the two children who were sort of like brought along to do these things as they were kids, they didn't know any better. Um, They grow up to be Nicole Kidman and Jason Bateman. Nicole Kidman is an actress and she's sort of a mediocrely successful actress who has to do these like demeaning parts. And she's like has sex with a reporter who's interviewing her because she is insecure about herself. And then Jason Bateman is, uh, like occasional writer who goes to like interview these dumb yahoos shooting potato guns and stuff like that. It's all very like cheap, low rent kind of stuff. He seems like he's either a hack or he doesn't have the confidence to like try and be a writer himself. So he gets drunk with these potato gun guys. One of whom is um, Michael Sherness, who shows up in a bunch of different things. He was on the early seasons of Orange is the New Black. He's in Mistress America. He's the ex-boyfriend. I was going to say, he's, he's the guy in Mistress America oh. who like goes to fund the project. I love him. I think he's so funny. Um, so Bateman ends up getting shot in the side of the head with a potato. And he, th- through being sort of incapacitated, his parents get called. Christopher Walken is the adult version, or the older version of his dad. Um, So his dad and his mom come to pick him up and he doesn't really want to see them. So he calls Nicole Kidman, his sister, and they all sort of reconvene and you can send, you can see that like they've become estranged and the kids are very resentful for their parents for sort of putting them through all that they put them through. And the parents still want to like do these little art projects, much more the father than the mother, the mother you can tell sort of like goes along with it. And they eventually the uh, Christopher Walken and I can't remember the actress who plays the mother. She's one of those familiar faces, but I can never quite place her name. So they ultimately go missing in this like seemingly staged setup that looks like a lot of recent murders, but Nicole Kidman especially like doesn't buy it. She's like, they're faking it. This is one of their art projects. Jason Bateman seems like he's more likely to believe that they maybe did get killed. And you can't tell for sure whether Nicole is in denial or whether she's just like really savvy to how her parents operate. And eventually how do do you want me to like fully spoil it? Or should I just be like, and then things happen? Um, why don't you spoil it? And then okay. we'll just go through it. So eventually we find out that the parents are alive and that even more than that, that Christopher Walken has had this like secret family where they're like old drama teacher. He ended up like getting together with her. Cause she was like sort of in the cult of their art 
persona um ended up having these like two teenage sons with her and he and their mother have separated and you can tell their mother is very sort of going along with it but is not happy and it's sort of tragic what's what sort of becomes of her and ultimately the movie ends with kidman and bateman cutting ties with their parents and just sort of being like we've had enough you don't ever you've never treated us as people you've only treated us as participants in your weird little art projects and they sort of set out to live their own lives i guess is how it ends the end yeah uh let's um let's go through it scene by scene okay i I took notes i don't know if if, if you did um i didn't specifically but but like i i there's there's a few things that i oh that's that's all right. I, these are literally things like my first note is that um, Nicole has like a Carrie Matheson like bulletin board for all the like footage of missing persons and murders in the area because it starts like in the middle of the story where they're looking for them. She gets very much into this. And that's again, I think the movie it sort of effectively makes you doubt whether she's you know, in denial about this kind of thing. And you feel like, oh, like, wouldn't this just be like an indie movie to have her do all of this work only to find out that her parents actually died, which is actually why I kind of liked the fact that they did turn out to be alive after all, because it wasn't just sort of like, see, and now everybody's dead, which is sort of an indie movie thing way to wrap things up. So I did really think that it was going to be that. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. thought it was going to be like a, a Winter's Bone-esque ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Um, yeah, it's, inter- it's, it's interesting. And we also learned pretty early on that both Jason Bateman and Nicole Kidman have like pretty significant substance abuse problems. Uh, oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> per- respectively, Nicole with alcohol and Jason Bateman either has just started with the like pain pills he's taking, or maybe perhaps has a history of them. And he feels pretty practiced with that kind of, with the (laughs) slamming of the Percocet. That does not feel like a new thing to me. So, yeah. Um, How do you feel about Nicole's like everyday, like mid neck length shortcut in this movie? Because I will tell you that I love it. It's not a look we see on her very often, right? Where it's sort of like halfway between casual and troubled do you know what i mean like it's not quite problem (laughs) hair it's not quite like oh no she's going through something but it's also definitely like it's not quite movie star glamorous which i think also like communicates a little stuff about you know what her status is as an actress where she uh, there's a scene early when uh the parents come back uh into their lives where Walken's character sort of like slights her movie career sort of offhandedly and you can tell it really bugs her like even in the next scene she's like you know he says something about like her movie career has never been art or something like that and she gets very sort of like self-conscious about that and you can tell where like she is just not where she wants to be and I feel like the hair communicates that in a very effective way plus I love Nicole as a redhead like it's so very like it feels like it's historically important whenever she goes back to red hair. It's uh it's good. Yeah, it's like halfway between like a birth wig and like a birthday girl wig. Oh in terms of like length and cut and color. Birthday girl is a movie that does not get referenced often enough in her I know. Uh, <laughs> Unless her you're here. <laughs> um I like it. And I also like that there's that scene where she's wearing a wig cap, like when she's in her dressing room. Yes. Um, Nobody can come for me now and say that they don't ever talk about wigs in any of her movies because we're seeing evidence. It is text. (laughs) It's text. Um, I also love that like her character is like a franchise actress maybe because they show that tabloid of her and they call her Annie lightning. And then they tell her that like someone else is cast as that character um, I love that they, she won't go topless when like Nicole literally can't wait to go topless in her movies. <laughs> it's, you know, separating the actress from the character like that. I love that scene too, where she finally decides to do it. And they're like, well, we put a robe in your trailer and she just walks from the trailer to the set topless, but we don't see it as the audience. And I'm like, again, we all we ever do is see her topless i like when she's arguing about the merits of the topless scene and she's like really she answers the door without her shirt on i was like yeah that's very also uh the guy who plays her director in the for that movie uh josh pace is one of those 
character actors who shows up infrequently enough that it's probably easy to like not even notice him but like whenever he shows up in something he's always very good and he has this like horrible freak out where he's just like a total dick to her and is yelling at her and whatever in this very sort of like impotent way that I found very funny. Um, the only thing I really have to say about him is that he was one of the voices in the 90s Ninja Turtles movie that I watched maybe a thousand times. Wait, was he really? Like the original, like the... Yeah, he's the voice of Raphael in the 1990. Oh! <laughs> That's like the only thing I know about him. I just looked him up and he was on Ray Donovan, but if you think I ever watched an episode of that show. <laughs> Ray Donovan, the show that doesn't exist. Um... That's wild. I had no idea. The only voice of the Ninja Turtles that I knew was the Corey Feldman voice Donatello. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess that's really the only one worth knowing. I guess at the time, too, like, that's the only one of them that I would have known, being like, you know, I was, like, 11 at the time, and Corey Feldman I knew from Goonies, so. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the um, various pranks that they pull? Oh, as, like, in the flashbacks? Yeah, so you mentioned the bank one, which is basically, like, the son, the Jason Bateman character, who we should also say they refer to them as, like, Child A and Child, child A and Child B. And then their actual Annie. names are Annie and Baxter, which is a nice way of remembering their names, because A and B. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's the bank robbing one. There's the one, the one I liked the best was the two kids are playing like their instruments in central park in this very sort of like childlike way. They're playing the song that actually becomes important to the plot called like kill your parents. And they're just being dumb young kids and they're attracting a little bit of a crowd. And then their parents who are playing just like bystanders, this is Catherine Hahn and the other guy, poor man's Bradley Whitford, um, just start heckling them and telling them that they're terrible at playing their instruments and that their parents would be ashamed of them. And, um, they just start this like fight among the, the crowd. They get people so mad at them. And Catherine Hahn is perfection in that scene where she's just like yelling abuse at these kids. It's very funny. There's one, one where she says, oh, I was to say at one point she says to a woman, I hope your uterus is shriveled up. <laughs> so it's so perfectly Catherine Hahn. It's like, I want I want like the 10 minute cut of that scene and just to see whatever else she said. Um, there's one where a uh, young Baxter wins a beauty pageant dressed as a little girl. And then as he's like accepting the crown, he like pulls off his wig again, wig focused, always the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what were the, I can't remember. There was there, another one. There's one, at a, there's one at a skate rank. Um, cause she's filming, um, one of the parents is filming from the second story, and I don't remember what the incident was. You know, you're Romeo right about Juliet. that. Right, the Romeo, the Romeo and Juliet. Juliet one. Right, which is like, that's the sort of, the one that feels like it scars the kids, because they were teenagers by then, and they had set up this scenario where the guy playing Romeo in the school play couldn't participate, and... Annie was playing Juliet and they needed Baxter to fill in as Romeo. And Annie, who was like the true believer, um, was like, was sort of like, you have to like, you're Romeo. So you have to like kiss me. And he was like, don't make me do this. This is stupid and awful. And ultimately he does in front of like the whole school and the parents are all very proud of their like avant-garde children or whatever. Um, but it's super kind of fucked up. There's also the one where they're taking these like family photos at like the Sears portrait studio, wherever the hell. And they smile and they have like vampire teeth and blood dripping out of their mouth, which is also another image that I really liked. But yeah, you can tell their like childhood was like increasingly fucked up as they got older and sort of more aware of what they were doing and nothing about their parents seemed sincere. Like it only seemed like they had kids to be, participants in their little art project so you could see where this would like fuck up these kids as they get older i think the romeo and juliet one really fucks baby nicole kimmon up because she learns that like a the teacher is like this weird acolyte yes of them who will become i guess her father's mistress right in a certain number of years and then like they pay off the kid so that he doesn't show up yeah it really disillusions her a lot which is that's a bummer 
<laughs> like it is a bummer it's point. not even a very good prank the prank is basically like we're gonna get our children who are siblings to kiss yeah like good one okay and like the audience is lit on it they're like really clapping so i'm like the prank is mostly just for like the parents to laugh i guess at that point well but also okay so here's what i didn't understand because like there are clearly classmates of theirs in the audience so like people know that they're siblings and I was just like, I expected much more of like a revolted uh, reaction from most of the people in the audience who were not like their weird parents. But I don't know. That's what I'm saying. They're all stoked on it. They all want to see those people. It reminds me of, uh, this is maybe going to be a minor spoiler, so maybe I'll cut it out. But during the High Life Q&A, <laughs> Claire Denis was talking about how like, people think her movies are shocking and she's her response to that is that she like puts people in circumstances where they get themselves to question things. And she was like, I almost put an incest scene in this movie because it would have been on the table and everyone was just like, Oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, you just have to get characters to a point where that becomes the thing that they would think about. And they were like, okay, (laughs) man, she's, I mean, she would know how to go there. Have you seen a simple favor yet? No, not yet. But you'd be the second person to talk about it on this podcast. So go for it. No, I don't. It, it, it's it would give away too much. Um, except just to say that, like the topic of incest comes up with such casualness in that movie that it's some somewhat shocking that, like, oh wow, you're just like, okay, we're gonna go with it. That's totally fine. Um, see it. It's it's a it's a ride. It's a it's a fun. Okay. Time. Yeah. I keep waiting for uh, the soon-to-be defunct movie pass to have it anywhere near me, but that might be wishful thinking. Well, hold on to the dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you feel about the Marin Ireland subplot in this movie? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't end up really going anywhere. I guess we're just left to assume that like, once Baxter like walks away from his parents, he will have a better chance at like not fucking up his life and and this woman may be one of the sort of areas he can gravitate to but i like Marin ireland a lot in things i don't know if she brings me too much in this particular role but no i i like her a lot too that's mainly the reason i ask i loved her on um homeland and also she's fun in mildred pierce wait who is she in mildred pierce remind me She's Letty. She's not huge in it, but um, she's in the miniseries. She's, okay. I mean, she's been in a million things. I did love her also in Homeland. Also, um, she was on The Slap, and everybody who was on The Slap deserves our uh, unending thanks and praise. The Slap, the That's show that, that gifted Lucas Hedges to us. That's how I think of The Slap now. So, I should go through and do um, like a mini episode that no one would listen to except for maybe you and you'd probably have to guess on it of all the people in the slap that are part of the Kidman extended universe. Oh, that would be a good one, actually. Tandy Newton is definitely a part of it. Yes. Um, No, I'm trying to connect Peter Sarsgaard somehow. I'm sure it works. There's definitely a handful of things that I think in my mind could be on this. This is something to pursue offline, but know that it's in my brain. Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad someone's working on it. Yeah, this is the type of journalism I think is important. Yes. Um, what is what else is on here? Um, there's that scene where they have to go visit that Hobart guy. Oh, right, Harris Eulin. Are you a Buffy person? Uh, yes. Okay, so you know you remember him from Buffy, obviously. I feel like that's always the role of his that I uh, that I gravitate to him that and being the judge in that scene in ghostbusters too um i'm just gonna tell you that i don't remember who he was on buffy okay so remember when the watchers council came to sunnydale to like give her those tests to if because they had like this information about glory and they're like okay well you have to like prove yourself to us and he was the head of the watchers council so when she gives this big speech about like you guys ain't shit essentially it was to him um, and then also again, he yes, he was the, he was the judge in that scene in Ghostbusters too, where the ghosts like take over the courtroom at the beginning of that movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Harris Eulin, character actor. Oh, he's apparently on Ozark. Mainly, he's ju- mainly he's just a person, especially in that scene where they go to his house, where he barely looks like anyone. So that was why I can't really tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Understandable. 
Um, that was another one where it's just sort of like, I guess that's kind of a dead end. I guess it sort of gets them a little bit closer to finding out the truth about their parents. But this, I feel like this movie is better if it's a little bit more satisfying in terms of them, like putting together an investigation. That's what I was going to say, because they spend a lot of time on him because we see him in, he's ultimately the person that funds this documentary that we've been seeing snippets of. Right. And I just think there's like a lot of time devoted for him for some revelations that are like less satisfying to be heard from him. Yeah. Maybe than to like see elsewhere. Maybe if they had like combined his character with the Linda Iman character, who was the, the drama teacher. Um, Cause even like when they find the, like, the song that was recorded by the two little kids, the YouTube kids or whatever, who eventually become their like half siblings. That's yeah. just like, they're just at like a yard sale where this song gets randomly played and they remember it from when they were kids. And like, it's very coincidental and that's just not satisfying to me. Yeah. That was the next thing I was going to bring up, which is like the series of events that bring us back to Mrs. Delano, the drama teacher. And it starts with that like happenstance song being played at that yard sale. And then later the, uh, like Nicole is like, of course, like, of course they knew that we would hear that song and like only be the one, only ones to figure it out. I'm like, but how, how would they know that was I for the long and even watching it again, I was like, am I forgetting the part where like Christopher Walken, like, sneaks into the yard sale and like puts that song on because that's the only, I was for sure that that's why they heard it was because their dad had like engineered it that way, but it wasn't. And it's too much of a, it's like way too much of a coincidence. We also have those, like the mom, like the Marianne Plunkett character has like been making art or like made art, traditional art before they were married and they're like hidden in Nicole Kidman's closet. So she thinks there's significance and that also mostly doesn't really pan out into anything. Yeah. I feel like the mom character is, I would have liked to have seen a lot more about her because she's so incredibly sympathetic and mostly you just are sort of left to feel sad for her. And I would have, it's weird that, she's played in the flashbacks by somebody so charismatic as Catherine Hahn that it gives you an expectation that we're going to get more out of that character, both in the past and in the present. And I wonder, like, I know that like Bateman and Hahn are probably friendly in real life. I know they were in, uh, this is where I leave you together. I, they've probably done television together, though. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but they sort of run in those sort of similar, TV comedy circles, right? So I'm sure that her getting that role in that movie was a little bit of because she knows Bateman, but it really gives the viewer expectations for that character that do not pay off. Yeah, it, it plays like a single note, which is like she clearly has some level of dissatisfaction, but I think it's like so disparate between the two. Yeah. And yeah, and Marion um, Plunkett is so good at playing her as an adult too. And again, it's like so sympathetic, but like you almost want her to have this sort of like big scene where she stands up to her husband and she, she does it in these very subtle ways, which I guess is like subtle is always good, but I don't know. Not quite satisfying. No, she got a real sad face though. Um, yeah. I will say that much. Yes, it's true. Uh, so you, you mentioned that they hear the song at a yard sale. They figure out it's like two like YouTube stars, basically, that like covered the Kill All Parents song that Nicole wrote. So Weird they pretend to be tween vloggers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they pretend to be journalists from Spin oh, Magazine. That was very funny. We're like Nicole's got this like full on like obsessed angry face, and she's like, "We're from Spin Magazine. You better fucking yeah. talk to us." <laughs> And they do. And then um, she basically is like, so who wrote the song? And she's like, no, you didn't. Cause like I wrote the song and then the mom shows up and then the, who is the mother? It's the drama teacher that would have taken a bullet for Christopher Walken. So Linda Emond and Danny Burstein are both in this movie. Uh, Danny Burstein plays the reporter who ends up uh, having the one night stand with Kidman's character towards the beginning. And they were of course, both, in the last Broadway revival of Cabaret. So that's all I could think of in this movie is like, when did this movie happen 
on that timeline where they have they been in cabaret together or were they about to be in cabaret together and that's the way we'll, that's where my brain goes when you cast broadway people in movies so fair warning there are a decent amount of um <coughs> broadway broadway overlaps in nicole kidman films and i always try to point them out so thank you for doing that work you're welcome <laughs> i will me. do the work i'm not a huge danny burstein fan um but i am a big fan of mrs burstein Wait, who is Mrs. Burstein? So, uh, Rebecca Luker. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they are. Um, okay. They are thing. He should have won the Tony for Follies. Her. That's what I say. Anyway. Um, we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, pretty much Christopher Walken just says like, yeah, we got married seven years ago. Also, I fathered these children who are older than seven. And um, please just let us pretend we're dead. And then Marianne Plunkett says, like, yes, that. Yeah, she basically is just sort of like, yeah, just go. It's um, an odd and ending. Then they, it is. And then they have, like, a montage of success where, like, Bateman's written his book. Right. writing it and, like, is teaching <laughs> suddenly. yeah. And hopefully it's with Marin Ireland. Yeah, I mean, one would hope, right? Yeah, it's it's weird that it's based on a book because it, you would think a book would have had a more, a better ending to it. I don't know. Like, sometimes I feel like screenplays can feel like they're being written and rewritten up until the point that they film. And so sometimes when a movie doesn't end well, I'm like, ah, well, they never found it. But, like, if you're basing this off of a book, like, this is a completed thing. And... I don't know. Do you think um, when they buy that Winnebago at the end, do you think that there's a universe uh, where Jason Bateman and Marin Island's characters grow up and become the couple in The Leisure Seeker? Oh. (laughs) I never saw The Leisure Seeker, although I will say I did predict Helen Mirren's Golden Globe nomination for it, Sight Unseen, and that is... (laughs) the best call I've made before an awards show in like many a year. So that's good. I don't know anyone that saw the leisure seeker, but if you did, please write in. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, tell us all about it. What was Um, your seat at the Paris theater in in midtown Manhattan when you saw the leisure? Seeker? (laughs) I can't imagine it played anywhere else. Uh, I think it played, it probably played at like the, uh, the, fucking Lumley or whatever it is in like Pasadena. <laughs> it's always like that specific, you know, exactly the type of theater we're talking about. Even if you haven't been to these places where it's like, it has the faint sort of like old lady perf- perfume smell in the lobby. Like this is, this is where all the, yeah, uh... I don't even go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, I don't even think it played at like the landmark here. Like, I don't even think it crossed that threshold. The very low bar of level played at the landmark. Yeah. Yeah. Here in New York, the Paris is like where I go to see like old. So this is where I saw like, I just saw the wife there. I saw the last station there. Like that's sort of the level that we're talking about. Oh, are they going to play like, what's it called? The, the book, the books shop with Patricia Clarkson or whatever. <gasps> I bet you they the will. Bookstore. Yes. Oh, I will. I will watch that. I would say that much. Uh, oh, it is called the bookshop. I thought I was being an idiot. Nope. You got it. Also, it's Emily Mortimer. You know what? That's fine. Emily, Emily Mortimer's Emily gonna Mortimer will age into. Yep. Perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. Uh, I think we're all ready to thoughts? experience Emily Mortimer again after the newsroom. <laughs> I think like we've given her enough time off that like it can happen now. Oh my god, I'm so ready for her. They made an Emily Mortimer joke. I'm starting Bojack Horseman finally, and they make an Emily Mortimer joke in like the second episode, and I was like, I miss her. I know. Uh, it's true. Also, every time I um, think about Alessandro Navolo, I have to think about her. Well, of course, yeah. Um. Anyway, do you have any stray thoughts on this movie before we rate it? Um... I tend to be on a very sort of thin wire with with, uh, Christopher Walken, whether I love him or am really sick of him in a movie. And I think he does well in this. I think the fact that they, that his character is really a jerk um, keeps him sort of playing this character rather than sort of like spinning off into his 
sort of usual tangents. He's still like weirdo Christopher Walken, but like he has to play some really kind of cruel line readings that um I don't know. It feels like a real performance. I think he and Wa- and uh, and and Kidman are the two sort of strongest performances in the movie besides Catherine Hahn, but I don't think she's in it enough to I was going to say she gets like the the most not most improved. She gets like Best cameo. She's not quite a cameo. Yeah. But yeah, it's like I was trying to give a sports award, but what do I know about sports? <laughs> She's like the sixth man. Yeah, if you were talking about like a basketball team, she would be like the sixth man. Uh, let's let's do this. Let's get you to actually rate the movie. Um, so I'm going to give you some one through five categories, five being the highest, um, and you'll get to kind of justify each one. And you are in competition for the very prestigious Golden Compass Award. Oh. Uh, I know. And um, your first category is going to be the wigs in this movie. So it can be just Nicole. It can be everyone. It's up to you. But one through five wigs. This is not a very wiggy movie. I feel like her hair feels plausible, even though, as you mentioned, we do see her in a wig cap. Um, But on the like on the Nicole Kidman scale, this movie could have been a lot wiggier. And especially because we're also talking about a family that like, was in costume for a lot of their like younger lives. Like, I feel like in terms of potential, the potential for wigs was a lot greater than what we got in reality for the wigs. So if I'm saying one through five, the wig cap does give it something, but I would say a two out of five. Uh, I'm inclined to agree. I do think it's a great Nicole wig, but um, it's great in like its plainness. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a plausible wig, plausible fish. Um, (laughs) how do you feel about the accents in this movie all right so i have this conversation with my friend robert about nicole's wigs uh now you've got me thinking wigs nicole's accents where i don't think we'd ever want her to be perfect on an accent because then it would be so far away from the nicole that we know and i think at some point we have to maybe like it's when we were talking about big little lies, I think. And we were like, is she just supposed to be Australian or is she not doing a good enough job of hiding it? And I think we came out on the other side of like, maybe this is just what she sounds like now that she's been in America making movies so long that like, this is just sort of like, that's her voice. And it's not maybe her doing a bad accent. It's just like, this is where it's settled. And cause you can definitely hear there are some line readings that feel very much like she is not holding on to whatever she needs to be holding on to. And maybe it's just sort of like, that's how she sounds out words now. And it's weird, but um, I'd say maybe a three out of five accent wise. It feels middle of the road to me. Great. Yeah. Um, I agree. I think that like my stance has always been like, she's not Kate McKinnon. She's not doing like impressions on SNL. I don't right. think she needs to be like, like syllable perfect. Um, right. And yeah, that probably is kind of just where she ended up. Um, okay, next, this is this is where that precursory knowledge from earlier comes into play. But this is your Naomi Watts scale. And really a high score okay. on this just signifies a high level of connection with Naomi to this movie. Common examples, you know, like, do you think she auditioned for this role? Do her and Nicole text about it? Have they ever set up like a movie night for their children to watch it? That sort of thing. But you get to set those criteria when you make this number. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of like what Naomi was doing during this period. So 2015 Naomi. Oh, okay. So here we go. 2015 Nicole Kidman's at the Toronto. Well, she's not at, because as I said, she wasn't promoting this movie. Um, but family Fang is at the Toronto film festival. It sort of passes by without a notice. So you could be like, Naomi is just like, see, you made this movie. Not everybody's going to pay attention every time, Nicole. Um, and you can maybe she's like comforting her, but in this sort of like fake way where it's just sort of like, you know, not everything you do has to be a big, huge hit. You can be, you know, you can make ordinary movies and that's fine. And But then do you know what movie opened the Toronto Film Festival that year? Oh, Demolition. <laughs> Demolition, which co-starred Naomi Watts and which was terrible and which everybody saw, but everybody thought was bad. And I don't think Naomi specifically got bad reviews, but like this was another sort of like crash and burn. And this was the same year that she was in um, the sea of trees, which was a huge legendary bomb. And then 
Um, at the time, it was called um, About Ray, but it, tr- it eventually was released as Three Generations, which was the movie with Al Fanning as the young transgender teen. And Naomi Watts was... Uh, played Al Fanning's mother, and then Susan Sarandon was a grandmother, and that also was terrible. So really, Nicole just had like kind of a quiet Toronto Film Festival, whereas like Naomi bombed twice. So I don't. What do I rank it high if Naomi was frustrated? Um, it's really up to you. It's really about connection. So any sort of strong feeling, I would say, gives it a higher. Uh, higher I think number. I think Naomi was was heated after this that's just like she was she was probably in a state she needed two bottles of red wine okay is that like, to a, like to a four a five yeah i would say a five i would put that as a five great you also just inspired me to do a, a mini episode where i somehow compare demolition to destroyer and pit the two women against <gasps> <each other. laughs> that sounds like a wrestling match too to it's like two tag teams yeah, to find out who was more destructive um <laughs> This uh, this next one is going to be approachability. So if you see Nicole's um, Annie Fang character at like a small social event, how likely are you to strike up a conversation with her? I think she's pretty approachable in this movie. I think ultimately you would probably be you would probably be like a good twenty five minutes into that conversation before you realize that like oh god she's an actress and like she's very sort of like doing those self conscious actressy things. Um, but yeah, I feel like she's, a, and again, on the Nicole Kidman scale, cause we know that like she can play some real unapproachable characters, but I feel like Annie is decently approachable, probably a four. Yeah. I think it's up there. I think also, um, frankly, alcoholics are sometimes very fun at parties and I think she'd be great for an hour or two. <laughs> uh, next is going to be the Scientology scale. So a high score on this would be, um, something that is very suppressive to the teachings of Scientology, a low score on this would mean that this movie um, is essentially Scientology propaganda. Oh, okay. I mean, it's basically her and her brother breaking free of a cult, even if the cult is only their parents. Yeah. Um, And it shows the damaging effect of raising children in an artificial environment where their, you know, the parents have instilled this like, world of make-believe that is not correct and damaging and doesn't raise your kids right so i feel like it probably wasn't meant to be a scientology analogy but you know you could read into it pretty doesn't take long to work up a little bit of a read into it on those lines so yeah i would say this is again i would say four out of five great i really liked that justification um and this last one uh should be pretty easy but this is overall level of iconicness as this movie pertains to nicole's career it's a performance of hers that i like i think it's i think it shows that like baseline nicole is you're getting a really strong level of performance that she does she's not an actress who i don't think she's a lazy actress i think it's the rare movie that you can look at and just be like she wasn't trying I can't think of anything actually that I think even when she's bad, it's when she's like going for too much. So, but I think also this iconic is not what I would, how I would describe this movie or this performance. I think it is, it's solid. It's likable. It's probably more than the movie deserves, but eh, iconic isn't where I would go with it, even though I like it. So I would say probably a one out of five cool yeah a good like rule of thumb about this is like does my mother know this movie exists and like the answer is oh yeah no absolutely not yeah okay so this gives you all right this gives you out of 30 gives you a 19 now for context for where you are uh the other 19 oh this is really good the other 19 is um iconic film happy feet um (laughs) but you are one above grace of monaco which i think makes okay good Staying um, ahead of that devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're maybe one behind uh you're one behind the invasion. So that's kind of where you land. Okay. That's that's probably that's fair. That's fair. The scale is science, so it, it's good science. Yeah, I like you. good science. It's uh it's 
truly never done me wrong. Um, one last task for you, if you feel up to it. And uh, this is something that I have everyone do each week. But um, in lieu of talking about Big Little Lies myself, uh, I outsource it to my guests. Um, so I'm going to have you explain the plot of Big Little Lies, but I'm going to have you do it in 60 seconds. Um, so if you okay. feel ready, whenever that is, go ahead and go. And I will put that time on the clock. Okay. So Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, and Shailene Woodley play like the witches from Macbeth. And um, I think that makes Laura Dern Lady Macbeth. Um, no, that they're like friends in Monterey and they're putting on a show. Well, wait, well, Reese Witherspoon is putting on a show, but like the opening credits, they're all putting on a show. Um, and uh, someone bit Amabella and it's so bad. Like, shh don't bite Amabella and they think it's Shailene's kid, but it's not Shailene's kid. It turns out to be Nicole Kidman's kid. And why? Because Nicole Kidman's kids are fucked up because their father is abusive to their mother. And meanwhile, like Madeline's making all these terrible decisions and Reese with a spoon that is, and um, her oldest daughter hates her and her youngest daughter is annoying. Um, but she's married to Adam Scott, but she's cheating on Adam Scott and it's really bad. And, um, fuck Laura Dern. Laura Dern starts out awful and she's so like mean to people, but it's like iconic because like I'm gay and like, I love that shit. But then she becomes like really likable. And by the end, she and Zoe Kravitz are weirdly like the ones who save the day. And like Zoe Kravitz kills the shit out of Alexander Skarsgård. And it's awesome. That was, that was really good. Um, okay. very specific observation that I just made. I think you're the first person to ever mention Reese Witherspoon's older daughter. <laughs> oh yeah. She's uh, in everything these days. That yeah. girl, like everything out of like 50 guests i think you're the first person to ever even mention her existence ah so hit me up Catherine newton i i appreciate you yeah um one other thing that i i always say one last thing and then i realize that i now have an additional thing 10 last um, things (laughs) yeah it's 10 last things before we go but uh i usually let the guests pick the outro music and they either usually choose something from the movie or just something that's on their minds um, and I can't really think of a whole lot of like musical cues in here other than kill all parents. So I, I was going to say, you could just put kill all parents there. <laughs> I could do that. That could be your choice. Um, I'm trying to think of like what else I'm bad with remembering stuff like music cues, unless that was like hugely influential in the movie. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of them in there. That's my that's my struggle. So sometimes people just I choose think... things that they like, but I will leave it up to you. Um. Oh, you know what is in this movie though is um that oh it's not Crosby, Stills and Nash. I always think it's Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, the song that's really about chess. Um, yes, is the band. I've seen all good people. Great. You know that, that song? Yeah. All right, do that. Great. Um, and before we go, can you remind everyone where they can find you? Oh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on uh, everyday at decider.com. I'll be writing about TV and movies. We do. Um, our focus is on what's on streaming. Uh, fortunately, everything ultimately ends up on streaming, such as Family Fang for too much money on Amazon VOD. And I'm on Letterboxd. I've started like throwing that out at the end of my podcast. Find me on Letterboxd. I'm actually using it these days. So that's fun. And... Um- since he is too modest. To oh do yeah, it, and this had Oscar buzz. Too. <laughs> yes, had thank Oscar you, buzz. God. <laughs> thank you for being responsible. Jesus Christ. I, I chalked it up to modesty. Did you like that? Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, listen to this had Oscar buzz. We just started a few months ago, and Chris and I really enjoy um, doing that podcast. We're just starting to have guests on, so uh, maybe Sam will have you on, and you can. Talk about one of those Nicole Oscar buzz movies, or maybe you are sick of talking about Nicole Kidman at all, and you can talk about something completely different. Yeah, who knows? The um, the nicest thing ever was when I did uh, Cameron's Julianne Moore podcast, and I just got to talk about Safe, which is just like a movie that I uh, unabashedly love, and unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Nicole had nothing to do with. <laughs> it was refreshing. And yet, it seems like a movie that she could have played. Like that is a role that I could very easily have seen Nicole in. That is another, like, six-hour podcast for you and I. (laughs) (laughs) The hypothetical crossovers between Nicole Kidman and Julianne Moore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, I want to say I'm very proud of myself for being on this podcast, even though you let somebody else talk about the hours. And normally I don't like anybody else talking about the hours. But you know what? That was was basically like a decade-long promise. So (laughs) you would have had to actually murder Tom to be able to do that. I appreciate it. I do love that movie, though. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, 
very quickly, I will say, uh, you know, like and subscribe uh, to the podcast and things like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, follow the podcast at the Kid Manifesto on Twitter or just follow me at Mr. Sam Herbst. Follow the other Sam Herbst at Sam Herbst. He's surprisingly really cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess enjoy this Yes song that I'm going to find. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This was super fun. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, bye. Take us straight and strong